Why don't you clap your hands unto the Lord just one more time. Give him the glory. Amen. We love you, Jesus. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful atmosphere on a Tuesday night. If you have your Bibles, the book of Hebrews, chapter number four, I want to give honor to Pastor Mayo and Sister Mayo in their absence. If you're here tonight and you're a guest or a visitor, please don't let uh, me paint a picture of this church. Come back when the pastor's here. Praise God. Amen. And um, but we're glad you're here tonight. Amen. The book of Hebrews chapter number 4. We will be reading from the 15th verse. It's always wonderful to have my wife and two children in the house of God with me. Amen. I trust and pray that everybody had more than enough to eat over this Thanksgiving holiday. I know you can't tell by looking, but um, I had some to eat myself. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I know it looks like I'm still on uh, a 40-day fast. Amen. Praise God. But I assure you, I had plenty of, of good food. Amen. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 4, verses 15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot I mean, that's a negative and a negative. Negative times negative is always a positive. Amen. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And for the next few moments, I would like to preach on a subject titled, A Bold Approach. A Bold Approach. Let's put our Bibles down and let's pray. God, in the name of Jesus, we come to you tonight. We are in need. I pray that you would touch my mind and direct my thoughts. God, touch my lips and direct my words. I pray that you would touch the ears and the hearts of the hearers that they might receive with meekness the engrafted word of God. And everybody said amen. One more time, why don't you clap your hands unto the Lord. Oh, come on. Somebody magnify the Lord with me and let's exalt his name together. Oh, yes, Lord. God bless you. You may be seated in Jesus' name. On the night of June the 11th, 2011, a man by the name of Roger Stringer received the phone call that no parent ever wants to receive. On the other side of the phone line was his son, Zachary, he was 12 years old. His voice was shaky. He was slow to speak. But he finally managed to inform his father of the news that his younger brother, Justin, had been shot and killed. The police were already at Roger's home when he arrived. And after concluding their initial investigation, 
the sheriff determined that there had been foul play. So now on top of the overwhelming loss, Roger was now perplexed as to whether his son Zachary was in some way culpable in the death of his brother. Zachary later gave a formal statement in which he told authorities that his brother had accidentally shot himself. However, the authorities did not believe Zachary. Immediately after his brother's funeral, Zachary was detained for further questioning. He was then read his rights, and uh, he was then arrested. He was just 12 years old, and they questioned him and to the point where he finally broke down and began to weep, simply saying, I just didn't do it. When Roger overheard what was happening, he tried to intervene, believing that he could somehow, as the boy's father, get the full story. But the sheriff's deputies told him, you're probably going to have to get a lawyer. Zachary was placed in jail, where he began to tell the guard yet another version of what happened on that night. He said that he was indeed in the room when his brother died and that he did grab his rifle just to show off. He explained that the rifle somehow was discharged and that he put his rifle uh, back and replaced it with his brother's to make it look like an accident. He later told this version of the story to the lawyer and to his father, insisting that it was an accident. Zachary was ultimately charged with murder, and if convicted, he would be sentenced to life without parole. Roger was unable to sleep for the next week. He had lost two sons in one summer. He would simply stare at the photos of them together and weep. He would scream and beat the floor until his voice was gone and his hands were bruised. On Christmas Eve of 2011, after visiting hours had long ended, Roger decided to drive several hours just to be close to Zachary, who was in prison for juvenile offenders. That night, alone in his truck, Roger decided that he would never give up on his son. Two years later, Roger would be forced to testify against his own son, Zachary, in court. The jury found him guilty of manslaughter and sentenced him to 20 years in prison. When Zach turned 18, he was moved to the Mississippi State Penitentiary, and it was here that Zachary decided finally that he would truly come clean and tell the full truth as to what happened on that fateful night. Zachary called his father and began to recount every detail of what really happened. Roger heard in Zachary's voice that he was no longer that scared boy he heard over the phone, but he was a man. Zach confessed that he and his brother were indeed roughhousing, he confessed that he indeed had loaded the gun and that he did sit with it in his lap. And as it so happened, it was pointed in his brother's direction. But in spite of all of this being very incriminating, Roger insisted that he never pulled or even touched the trigger. The rifle just went off on its own. But Zachary felt that no one would ever believe him or love him after what had happened. So in sheer panic and distress, he staged it to appear as if it was an accident that he was not involved in. They ended the conversation over the phone, and this is where things took an interesting turn. The next day, Roger was at home and decided to clean his own weapon. He took his pistol, he disassembled it, cleaned it, lubricated it, 
And upon reassembling it, he pointed it at the fireplace and he pulled the trigger. And much to his shock, the firearm went off. He had left just one round in the chamber. Roger began to panic as he realized the gravity of his mistake. In that moment, as he tried to cover his blunder, he felt fear, embarrassment, shame, and guilt. And his heart began to race. And it was at this moment that he heard a little voice tell him, maybe this is what your son felt on the night his brother was killed. Roger broke down and began to weep on the floor. And for the first time since the incident, he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that his son was innocent. After a simple internet search, Roger discovered that the rifle that he had bought his son many years before was under a recall for what the manufacturer was calling a spontaneous discharge. Some eight million rifles had been recalled because they could potentially fire without the trigger being actuated. Armed with this bit of information, with tears streaming down his face, he raced to the lawyer's office and spent the next year of his life fighting for the son that two years prior he had testified against. Zachary was ultimately released from prison, but not because the lawyer was good, not because there was new evidence, amen, but for one moment, amen, his father was able to feel his pain and his shame and his regret. And I want to preach to you tonight, amen, that in our time of need, what we need to remember the most is that we too have a heavenly father who understands exactly what it is that we are going through. And I want to preach to those who have a need, spoken or unspoken, those who need mercy, those who need grace, and then those who need help, and those who need healing or blessing. I want to preach that we have a heavenly Father, and then that before we even ask, and then our needs have already ascended, and then up to the throne room of heaven, and all we have to do is ask. And I'm telling you, God is more than willing to supply everything. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the devil telling me that I can't approach God. And I'm here to preach to you tonight that we have a heavenly father that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And so now, knowing that, we can come humbly but boldly into the throne room of grace. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where people might have even looked at me and thought, man, that's bold the way he went to the altar. But when you know know, amen, what's on the other side, amen, of that prayer. When you know there's a heavenly father who's beckoning and welcoming you, amen, you to come into his presence, amen, nothing will stop you. I know, amen, maybe you're here tonight and you think, man, these Pentecostals, amen, they really attack that altar. Let me tell you why we come to this altar the way we come to this altar. It's because we have a revelation that our God is not just some, amen, man in the sky, but he robed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us and he felt the pain and he he felt the shame and then he felt the reproach of sin oh but I'm thankful and then that that sacrifice of Calvary allowed him to identify with my human experience God has always been approachable one of the most difficult things to understand in our time of need is that the way that we are thinking and feeling about ourselves is not the way 
that God thinks and feels about us. And if we allow these thoughts to dictate our actions, we will find ourselves running from the only person who can help us in that moment. We like to quote the scripture, and it's a good scripture. But sometimes you just got to read the verse before it to get the full context. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we love to quote that scripture. But the particular way in which his ways are higher than our ways and the particular thoughts that are higher than our thoughts are precisely, amen, the thoughts that we have after and in the middle of our need. Our needs have a way of painting our perception of God. Our needs, I don't know about you, but if you ever really needed something, regardless of how bad you've needed it, you've allowed, I mean, what people would think of your need, I mean, to dictate whether you would actually try to get some help. And when you're in dire need, Amen. If we allow that need to overtake us, uh, amen, it will paint a picture of God that is, that, is, that is not indicative of his true attitude toward us. And what God wants us to know more than anything is when you need something, amen, I'm not thinking like you're thinking about your needs. And I'm not operating the way you might operate when you need something. I'm telling you, God is trying to get it through to us tonight. Amen. That whatever you need, God is more than willing and able to. I'm telling you, his love for us and the way that he cares for us is beyond our comprehension. And so he's letting somebody know tonight. Amen. When you need something, let me just remind you, the way that you think of yourself is not the way I see you in your need. I'm t his thoughts are way up here and my thoughts are way down here. I'd rather take God's thoughts of me. Because when you get that revelation, you can't help but go to the altar. You can't help but lift your hands up. You can't help but pray. You can't help but lay it all on the altar. One of the best examples of this is in the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sinned, what they needed, what they needed, was to be restored and covered. But what they did was totally the opposite. They covered themselves and they hid from God. They knew they needed something, but they allowed how they felt in that moment to paint the picture of God. And it was inaccurate. And one of the worst things that can happen to us, regardless of what we need, but especially when we need mercy. And especially when we need forgiveness. Is the devil tries to suspend us in that shame and trap us and freeze us in that guilt. And so we wind up running and hiding from God when we should be running to and hiding in God. God. 
And so God did what he always did. He went to the garden in the cool of the day, and he went to look for Adam. Nothing had changed. God's routine didn't change. What changed was Adam now had a need, and that need was forgiveness, and it was so overwhelming that he allowed it to paint a picture of what he should do in that moment. But nothing, but nothing for God had changed. He had come just like he, he had always come to talk to Adam in the garden. And one of the worst things about sin is it gives us this assumption about the nature and the character of God toward us. And man, sin has a way of overriding any positive experiences up until that point. Before Adam was in the garden, he talked with the Lord. That's how he got into the garden. While he was in the garden, he talked with the Lord. All of these experiences were positive. But one moment of weakness and one moment of need, I and mean, then everything about that experience that had happened up until that point was overwritten by this overwhelming sense of And so God comes looking for Adam. Nothing has changed. God has always been approachable, whether it was Adam or Enoch or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, even Cain. God has always been approachable. Maybe at times that approach was narrow in scope. It began with just one man, Abram, then to his family. Then it went, a man, to a nation. And ultimately the plan was that through Abraham, God said, all of the families of the world would be blessed. And so we know that God has always been approachable. And in fact, since that time, he's only become more approachable. Amen. Enough with this, that God is unapproachable. Oh, yes, he's holy, but let me tell you something. Amen. God created you for communion. God created you for fellowship. God created, God created you because... Why, why would he create us for fellowship and then make himself unapproachable to us? And I understand that there's the, the Levitical law. And the, under the Levitical law, there was, a, there was a unique way in which God was to be approached. But that was for that time and for that season. You needed, you needed a holy man. Of all of, of, all the, of all of the people in the world, the Israelites were the most holy. And of all of the Israelites, the most holy were the Levites. And of all the Levites, the most holy was the high priest. So you needed a very holy man. And then you needed, of all of the holy days on the Jewish lunar calendar, the holiest day was the day of atonement. And so you needed a holy man, and you needed a holy day. And of all of the holiest places on the planet, the holiest land is Israel. And of all the places in Israel, the holiest place is Jerusalem. And of all the places in Jerusalem, the holiest place is the temple. Just bear with me. And in the temple, the holiest thing and the holiest place is the innermost court. Because inside of that innermost chamber, amen, is the Ark of the Covenant. Amen. And that is holy because on top of the Ark of the Covenant sits the mercy seat. Let me tell you, when you get to the center of it all, it's mercy. It's on the holiest day, take the holiest man to the holiest place, and he has the holiest job, and that is to atone for the sins of the people. But let me tell you what happened on the day my Lord and my Savior was crucified. Amen. The veil that covered, amen, that holy chamber from the rest of the world was ripped in twain from top to bottom, and the approach... 
And the God who was approachable by some became approachable by all. And seeing that we have a high priest which cannot be touched. Amen. By the feeling of our infirmities, he says, let us go into the, I'm telling you, we have a bold approach, amen, to church. That's why I love being an apostolic Pentecostal. Because I don't have to sit back there on my pew. I mean, I can get up. I can come to this altar anytime, any day, any place, no matter the hour, no matter the need, no matter the circumstance. Oh, I wish somebody would help me preach. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where the need was immediate and where it was urgent, where it was pressing. I didn't have time to wait for the day of atonement. I didn't have time, amen, to call, amen, some guy wearing a costume. I just had to find, amen, the access, amen, to the throne room of grace. And I came boldly, but it wasn't arrogance. This is not arrogance. This is not irreverence. And I know and I understand that some, you know, some people come from a traditional background and it can seem arrogant or unruly or irreverent to behave the way that we behave in church. But it says that we can approach boldly. Not flippantly, not disrespectfully. We don't do that, but we do come boldly. And biblically speaking, we can come whenever we want. I'm reminded of a story. There's this king and I could just see it play out in my mind. This Jewish girl, she bursts in, and she knows that she could die if she goes into that throne room. And she willingly accepted that it was worth it to risk her life to get her needs to the king than to sit outside that room and wonder what might happen to my people in this hour of need. What's beautiful is we don't have to sit here, amen, and wonder what God is going to think of us, amen, if we all of a sudden decide to repent. We don't have to sit here and wonder, amen, what God is going to think of us if we begin to express our needs. You see, in Luke chapter number 8, there's a woman with the issue of blood. And I find this story very unique because even the disciples after Jesus said, who touched me? Even the disciples said, Lord, you see this crowd of people. I mean, they're, they're, they're thronging. Everyone was touching Jesus. And they're thinking, why would you ask who touched you? I mean, it was like, you know, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, why would, that's kind of, there's so many people. You see, there's people who, there were people in the crowd and they were touching Jesus with their hands. But only one woman touched him with her needs. And even in a crowd this size, there might be people who touch the Lord with their hands. But what God is really looking for is someone who will touch him with their needs. And I know we can come to the house of the Lord and we can just be tough and we can just be saved or unsaved. 
and think that we don't need anything. But let me tell you what God really wants. Uh, amen. More than you to come here and just sit down, amen, and just and do a hand praise. What he, what, what he really, really wants is for you to make your needs known to him. Because your needs is what actually begins to unlock the flow of virtue. And Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody touched me. And they're thinking, everybody's touching you. He said, no, only one woman touched me with her need. He said, I felt virtue leave me. And I'm telling you, when you really want the Holy Ghost to start flowing in your life, you need to begin to touch the Lord, not just with your praise, not just with your worship, not just with, but start touching God with your needs. And I know how it is to, to think that I don't got needs, you know. Well, guess what? What you need is needs. Praise God. A man came to Jesus and he said, here's my son. And he said, since he was a boy, the devil would throw him. And then in the fire and the water, it's. But before it was all over, he stepped in front of that boy and said, actually, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know I'm preaching to somebody. It can, it can be really easy to come to the house of God and think of all of the other people who'd have needs around you. But when Jesus really got to the bottom and in, a, in the heart of the issue, and then that man said, you know what, I got needs too. And it can feel selfish at times to our flesh to put ourselves in front of even our children. But he said, I need to believe that this can be done. And so his needs needed to be addressed Amen. Before he could start addressing the needs of others. It's not greedy to be needy. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Because where the Lord is concerned, I get real needy. Because if you're not sick, you don't get to see the doctor. And where the, the whole need not a physician. And so I'm telling you, it behooves all of us to get to the point uh, where we're not afraid to come to the Lord with our needs. Uh, whether you've lived for God for one week, uh, amen, or 10, or 10 years, or 20 years, uh, all of us have a need. And to ignore our need is to stop the flow of virtue in our life. I don't know about you, but I've got needs. I need God. I need mercy. I need help. I need grace. And if I don't admit that, I don't get the flow of virtue in my life. If we want to see an unprecedented revival, we need a revival of needs. This church has needs. This church needs to build. This church needs to fund. And guess what? God... That's where the virtue flows. And then individuals have needs. You need a job. You need a raise. You need a bigger car. You need a bigger house. And guess what? No needs, no virtue. And I'm telling you, oh, a lot of people can be touching him. A lot of churches and individuals might be touching him. But I want to touch him with my needs. I want to touch him with the... Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst after righteousness. And then hunger and thirst are not wants. Hunger and thirst are needs. I'm telling you, for they shall be filled. I'm telling you what we need more than ever in this last day, in this, in this age that we live in, in this age of affluence, in the, American, in the American continent, in our wonderful, blessed atmosphere that we have, is we need a revival of people who are not afraid to say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need Jesus turned, Jesus said to that church in Revelation, you said that you have need of nothing. 
I mean, God's like, well, can't help you there. When you get to the place where you say you have need of nothing, I mean, what you actually are really coming to is the place where you actually need to have needs. He said, you, you say you have need of nothing. And the most dangerous place, and I, and, and I say this with all due respect, the most dangerous place, I mean, for the American Apostolic Church, I mean, is where we get to the place where we think we don't need God anymore. We don't need God. We, we got it. We got the music. We have the programs. We have the buildings. We have the funds. They need, they need help over there in that country. Amen. And then you go there on a mission trip and they pray you through. Oh, yeah. Because they have needs. And because they have needs, there's virtue that you don't have access to because you've. God's not different on different continents. We're different on different continents. We're the ones. There's no God of America and God of the Philippines and God of Ethiopia. There's just God. There's just Americans, Ethiopians, Filipinos, Mexicans. We're all different. And depending on where we live and where we were raised and what our experiences, and particularly here, because you know, we're Americans, so we can talk about American stuff. Praise God. Amen. I love America. I was a Boy Scout. Amen. Eagle Scout. Amen. But what's happened in our situation is we just don't need nothing no more. I mean, what do we really need? Think about it. We're not starving. Praise God. We're not out on the streets. What do we need? And what begins to happen is that outer layer begins to dry out. You see, needs is what keeps this thing together. You see, the way, when they would fish in the Bible, they used nets. And the thing about nets is if they weren't actually being used, they would dry out. And so you would ruin your investment in those nets if you did not use them. And even the boats, uh, in, in a museum in Israel, there's something called the Jesus boat. And it, it, was, it was taken from the Sea of Galilee, I believe it was. And it was the type of boat that would have been used in the time of Jesus. And they discovered that these boats were actually designed to, to swell and, and the seams would close. But these, they had to be used. The nets had to be used. The boats had to be used. And so without them constantly being in use, they would dry out and they would rot. The nets would be of no use and... The boats would be of no use. That's why it was such a big deal when Jesus told those fishermen, you come follow me. Amen. Because it, that was it. The moment those things were out of commission, it was over. And that was money down the drain. But I'm telling you, the way things work in the kingdom of God is if, there, if it's not constantly being put in a position of stress, I and mean, if there's no need, I and mean, then something simply begins to just, it, it, it loses, it, it, it loses its purpose, it begins to, it begins to wane, and it begins to die out, and I'm telling you, needs is what keeps the pressure, I and mean, then the balance of pressure on us to pray, 
the balance of pressure on us. I mean, just the right amount of stress to keep us coming back to the Lord. And I'm telling you, nothing, nothing, I mean, makes God happier than when his children come to him. I'm telling you, I want to talk about the greatest needs of the hour. I mean, the number one greatest need that we have is we need the Holy Ghost. I don't care where you're from, where you were born, I mean, how many times you've spoken in tongues over the past 20 years. We need the Holy Ghost. If you don't have the Holy Ghost here tonight, you need it. Amen. It's not optional. Amen. It's not something that you might just do well with. Amen. Well, we need the power of the Holy Ghost. We need it in our services. We need it in our pre... We need it... We need it in our schools. We need it in our homes. We need it, amen, in every single conference. This is the biggest need, period, hands down. Jesus said... Which of you, being a father, if your children would ask something of you? I mean, they ask for an egg. You give them an egg. Jesus said all of these things. He said, how much more your heavenly father would give you the Holy Ghost? The biggest lie from hell is that God doesn't want to give you the Holy Ghost. And I know we have what we sometimes call chronic seekers. And, uh, in fact, just recently I spoke to a pastor. He said before he got the Holy Ghost, he prayed for 10 years. He was in church for 10 years before God filled him with the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. Amen. But he kept on seeking the Holy Ghost. We need to get to the place where we understand that the most important need in our life is to have the Holy Ghost fill us from head to toe. That right there will fix 99.99% of your problems. And I know that might seem like an oversimplification, but I'm telling you, this is the reason why we preach uh, Acts 2.38 the way that we preach it. I mean, nothing about, nothing about the day of Pentecost was partial. I mean, it, it even says the day of Pentecost was fully come. And they were, not some, all in one place. And they were all in one accord. I mean, it's not hyperbole. I mean, the reason why the Bible is so adamant about communicating what happened on the day of Pentecost is because the greatest need, I mean, of the hour, I mean, from that time until right now is for you to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, I'm telling you, there are very few problems in this life that if you don't hit the altar and start talking in tongues and letting the Spirit edify you, that God won't give you some clarity and some wisdom and some relief. And maybe he won't rescue you from your fire but maybe he'll come join you in the fire but I'm telling you you need the Holy Ghost and fire I can go on but I feel like I don't really have much more time and I feel like I don't really have time to get into the things I want to get into but let me just tell you this I mean God is going to have I mean a church in the last day and in the last age and it's going to be because I mean the church falls to its knees and we have a revelation and we have a revival that we are 100% totally dependent on God and because 
Amen. Our money amen, can only take us so far. Our skills and our talents will only take us so far. If we are going to have and see the revival that God has promised us, we have got to get to the place where we go to the throne room humbly but boldly. And when we ask for mercy and when we ask for grace. And mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. And I'm telling you, I need mercy on some days. On other days, I need grace. There's things I need that I can't get on my own. But I pray and I say, Lord, this is what I need. And I'm telling you, we have a God, amen, who did not just remain up there in heaven, but because he's familiar with the feeling of my infirmities. My need is not a mystery to him. It's not abstract for him. Amen. It's not theoretical. I'm almost through the musicians. If you'd come and just help me out. It can be so easy to not understand the relationship. Amen. Between our revelation of the character and the disposition of God toward us and our ability to approach Him with ease. I'm not preaching this because we don't do this. I'm preaching this because we do this all the time. I can't think of an environment in which more people are more open with their needs than an apostolic Pentecostal environment. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's no judgment. We just have needs all the time, and we take them to the Lord all the time. And we do it week in and week out for years until the Lord takes us home. See, there, there's, this, there's this synergy between what happens here while we're here what happens while we're outside of these walls you know some people believe you know if we just have really good church it'll fix all of our problems outside of church and some people believe well if people just really prayed when they were home we'd have better church and I don't think it's I don't think it's one or the other I think there's a cycle I think there's a synergy Ezekiel said the yoke was broken because of the anointing. Now, one way that scholars look at that is literally that animal begins to grow until he breaks the yoke off of him. But I believe what that prophet was saying was the bondage on that beast will be broken because of the anointing oil that flows in the temple. And so the anointing that flows in this place can break bondage off of us when we're out there. 
But on the flip side, you have Jesus who did the work of redemption outside of the city walls, outside of the temple. And what happened in the temple was the veil was torn. And so there's a work that can only be done in here. And there's also a work that can only be done out there, but it affects what goes on in here. And if we remove ourselves from that equation and we stop communicating our needs, we become dry and stagnant. I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than a dry spell. Knowing someone else is getting their blessing. But finally, at some point, not because God has disappeared, but because you finally tap into what your need is. That's how you come out of a dry spell. God's not withholding his spirit from you. You're withholding your needs from him. You're touching him with your hands. Let's stand together all over this place. What you think God thinks about you is... That's not what he thinks about you. What you think God thinks about your need, that's not what he thinks about your need. How you feel right now in your place of need is not how God feels about you in your place of need. But tonight, we're going to give it all back to Jesus. Let's lift our hands all over this house. Let's begin to pray. The musicians are going to sing in just a moment. But I feel it would be appropriate tonight. If you've been holding back on your needs, on expressing what you really need from God. If you've been putting yourself, amen, on the bottom of your own prayer list. Because you feel like you don't need it. Amen. You stop the flow of virtue to all the other people on your prayer list. I know. I know we can get caught up in the Mary and the, and the Martha dynamic. But only one thing is needful. And that is you attend to your need with God and God will begin to flow and pour virtue into you and let it flow through you into the different people and areas of your life. Let's begin to pray right now in the name of Jesus. God, we love you, Lord. We come to you tonight. God, we know, we know that you know what we need before we ask, but we're allowing our request to be known as well. I open up this altar in Jesus' name. Why don't we come? Why don't we pray if you feel to pray? I feel like God is communicating, and God is trying to call someone. And God is trying to bring someone to a place of recognition.